former U.S. House Speaker Tip O'Neill famously once said, all politics is local. Others have been inspired to suggest that all health care is local, too, and there's certainly some truth to that. But there's a growing realization that communities face a lot of the same problems and challenges, and every time we loosen our grip on where the best ideas may reside, if we inch out just a bit further from our usual spheres, we find new and better solutions to such things as care coordination, improving primary care access, engaging with patients in shared decision-making. That's turning out to be a good thing for healthcare improvers all over the U.S. and in far-flung locations. So giving yourselves the benefit of a global view of improvement, that's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Sometimes if you put a few people in the same room, you can cover a lot of ground. And that's because the people themselves reach out and travel far and wide, and between them can share valuable learning from several continents. And again, I just want to remind everybody that we'll open up the chat for real at the bottom of the hour here for your questions and comments. And also today, John, to my left here, is with me in the studio helping us out, and he's going to be tweeting from the program. And if you are interested in his tweets or want to follow them during the program or after, uh, you can find them at hashtag IHI. Uh, that's the IHI Twitter feed and hashtag IHI. So we welcome your participation in that way as well. So again, welcome to WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan. For our discussion on a global view of improvement, let me introduce our guest, starting with Pedro Delgado, who's joining us by phone from Portugal today. Uh, Pedro is an executive director with IHI. He's working on large-scale health system improvement in Europe and in Latin America. Welcome, Pedro. Hi, Matt. It's, it's great to be here, and I look forward to the next hour. Great. Terrific. Our two other guests are with me in the studio. Lord Nigel Crisp is the former chief executive of the National Health Service and former permanent secretary of the Department of Health in the United Kingdom. He is currently a strategic advisor to IHI's senior leadership team on global health and author of the book, Turning the World Upside Down, The Search for Global Health in the 21st Century. Welcome, Nigel. Thank you very much, Madge. Delighted to be here. Terrific. And rounding things out on today's WIHI is Dr. Pierre Barker. He's a senior vice president at IHI, overseeing the organization's work in South Africa, Ghana, Malawi, and India. Pierre, Pedro, and Nigel have far more extensive biographies than I've mentioned here, so do check out additional information about each of them on IHI.org. Welcome, Pierre. Thanks, Madge. All right. So the world is large, and a global view of improvement is no small topic. But we're going to try and break some things down for you into manageable ideas and information, things that perhaps you can work with further long after this program. And I want to start off by trying to get some lay of the land from our guests about what it means to possess or even encourage a global view of improving health care. So we're going to do, it's kind of a warm-up question. We'll go around. We won't spend too much time on this right now just to kind of uh, get us going. So I'm going to start with you, Pedro. In your own words, sir, what does it mean uh, to have a global view of improving health care? 
Matt, there's many uh, realizations that we've come across. Uh, uh, one of them is the often quoted statistic about uh, the time that it it took Facebook to reach 50 million users. It took radio 38 years. It took it took TV 13 years, internet one year, uh, the iPod three years, and, and Facebook uh, actually reached over 200 million users in less than a year. So it, it, it tells us that the world is uh, shrinking uh, in a sense. And, and looking at, uh, at health and healthcare globally, it's, it's, uh, it's becoming an imperative. And we've, we've come to, to realize that for, for some time now, and, uh, and we relish every opportunity we have to harvest uh, information, harvest stories, harvest uh, improvement uh, experiences from everywhere so that we can share them and we realize that statistics across the world in, in, uh, in certain conditions are pretty similar. So, so we're, uh, we're very tuned in with this idea of, of uh, globality in healthcare, in health and healthcare. Okay, thanks so much, Pedro. Pierre Barker, what would you add to that? Um, I, I start from the, the concept that um, the health and health care is a universal um, concern uh, that affects uh, countries and, and people around the world. And I think for us the exciting uh, part of that is that we have a, a – with quality improvement, we've got a set of common principles and, and methods uh, to tackle uh, the improvement of health and health care around the world. Okay, improvement method. So you're kind of getting a sense. And by the way, if you are hearing a little bit of a buzz, that is because we are trying to be very global and we're going to forever improve our connections. Uh, but we are so grateful that Pedro can be with us from Portugal and uh, that phone buzz hopefully may, may lessen or we'll just get more used to it. So, Nigel, uh, are we on to the right framework here in terms of a global view of improving healthcare? What, what does it mean to you? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Well, that's right. Let, let me add two points. I think one is that there is something which is now getting called the economic transition, which is as countries get a bit richer, healthcare becomes a really important matter politically and, and for their people. And we've just seen that happening in both India and China. So there are more and more people who are interested in healthcare. There's, there's more and more demand for it, even though there's always been a need for it. There's now more and more demand for it. And I think what goes alongside that is that we're seeing much more diversity in how people are approaching that problem. How do you provide healthcare for your population if you're sitting in India, China, or indeed somewhere in Africa, or indeed here in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts? And that diversity is partly because people are starting from different points of view. And I think that's really helpful for us, wherever we are, to be actually looking at the world through other people's eyes and understanding that there may be some ways we haven't thought of in terms of how we can improve health in our own situation. Okay. All right. So let me go around. I'm going to start with you, Nigel. We'll go back the other way. Um, you're starting to answer this, but what's at stake? Why does it matter? There's an awful lot that people are working on right now, and in some sense, I could, you know, as I thought about trying to gather more people for this call today, I thought about the, uh, all the pressing things that folks are working on, and I could imagine many people feeling, well, I, that's interesting. Um, I'd love to know more about what's happening in this country or that country, but maybe next week or the week after. So why does it matter? Well, why I think it matters to us, and I'm speaking as a European, and I think the same thing is true for, for you as Americans, is, is that actually our healthcare systems are in a mess. 
I mean, put very simply, we have got the structure of a healthcare system to deal with the 20th century problems, and we've got the 21st century problems. So we've got systems that are based on doctors um, and hospitals and sort of uh, that sort of infrastructure. And we know that this century's problems are about how do you provide better care for people where they are, how do you help them in their acute episodes, but more importantly, help them, or as importantly, let me get that right, as importantly, help them to stay fit, to stay well, to actually avoid those acute episodes. So we need a different sort of infrastructure from the one that we've got. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing to make the shift from one to the other. Uh, and that's the sort of basic problem that I think we have in these rich and rather overdeveloped health systems. And that's why I think there's quite a lot, we can, and we'll talk about this no, no doubt rather more, uh, that we can actually learn from some of the countries who haven't got that legacy and therefore can start off in a different direction. Okay, thanks, Nigel. Pierre, what's at stake? Why does it matter? So for me, uh, it, this is just a huge opportunity. There is a, just a tremendous amount of um, ill health uh, globally, um, and I think that we have the opportunity to do something really uh, important um, in the process. And I, I reflect on a, a meeting that I was in in Accra um, in December of last year, the African Academies of Science, and there was a particular statistic that really uh, struck me as to what uh, the task is at hand and, and also potentially what the solution is. And the statistic is that uh, in sub-Saharan Africa alone, each year, uh, you could save the lives of 4 million women and children just by using the knowledge that we currently have and, more importantly, uh, using the resources that we currently have at hand. So the, 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 the typical response to uh, fixing a problem is to, is to throw more resources at, at, at the problem. And I think the opportunity for us really is that we can be smarter about that. And, and, and the opportunity, certainly, that the quality improvement approach offers is to close that gap. We, we certainly have the knowledge, and, and, and there's another gap out there, which is the, the gap between the amount of resources that are spent on getting more knowledge, uh, more vaccines, more, more uh, better ways of treating diseases, and the amount of resources that are spent on understanding how to use those resources, those that knowledge uh, in a resource-constrained environment. And I think, for me, that's why it matters, is that we, we potentially have some answers. Okay, thank you, Pierre Barker. All right, Pedro, so you get to round off this first section here. Why does all this matter? Why are you working so hard on this? So there's, there's, I'll mention a statistic to start with, just to follow the flow. The, the, for instance, if you take Canada, 90% of those who get childhood cancer survive. Uh, in poor countries, 90% die. That, that's a stark contrast, and one that that points to the to the issue of social justice and and healthcare being a, a human right and so on. It's it's uh, it's important that we that we use the opportunity that we have with communications, with the knowledge that's already out there to start to to close gaps. I also mentioned something that, that Nigel started, which is this issue of, of, uh, of access. Yeah, in a way, uh, I, I recently heard in one of our meetings with, with the Latin American leaders, uh, the word access being changed to, to acercabilidad, which in Spanish means nearness. So instead of thinking about access, in, the way, in a way of providing access to people, we should be thinking about how we can get closer to them. So Nigel mentioned the hospital model being outdated, and, 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 and this goes a long way to, to try and shift that, that perspective in terms of, of what the future holds for us. So. Mm -hmm. 
Say say the uh, word in Spanish again, Pedro. Nearness. Acercabilidad. So so that means the ability to be close to somebody, right. and in this case, right. is the ability to be close to those who are suffering or or burdened by illness. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, so if you're just joining us, this is WIHI, and we're making the case or kind of building some of the ideas for a global view of improvement with three experts in the field, Pedro Delgado, Pierre Barker, and Nigel Crisp. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan. So now we're going to switch gears, and I'm going to start with Pierre. And what I've done is I've asked each of uh, each uh, Pierre, Nigel, and Pedro. I'd like each of you to kind of give us a little bit more uh, depth here in your particular sphere. So you heard Pierre say at the outset that he's kind of emboldened uh, by the very prospect of what improvement methods and improvement framework can bring to an awful lot of parts of the world and perhaps even more diverse health problems uh, than we might have thought, as well as the fact that perhaps some health problems are becoming more similar. So I wanted Pierre to walk us through that for starters. Thanks, Pierre. Yeah, well, uh, you know, my personal improvement journey started um, uh, here in the United States. I'm a, a pediatrician, and I had the uh, good fortune and 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 interesting time uh, to be medical director at a children's hospital um, in North Carolina, and as uh, Part of that role uh, really was uh, that was my first exposure to IHI and my f- my first exposure to quality improvement. Um, and um, a couple of years after I uh, had been involved in work around mostly around uh, access and, and chronic disease management, um, I had a tremendous opportunity to go back to my home country, which is South Africa, and the. Um, opportunity was really to see if we could use quality improvement um, uh, to address the HIV epidemic in South Africa, uh, principally to look at whether or not we could get many more people onto treatment in much faster time and and keep them on treatment and to deal with the issue of the transmission of mother to child uh, uh, passing on of the virus to to their infants. And so I uh, came back to Africa really uh, with uh, the idea that that there were going to have to be a lot of adaptations um, to the methods that I've been using uh, back here in the United States. And one of the interesting things was that I found that while there were some important um, adaptations that, that, that were required, that, that basically it's the same system. And I think one of the beauties of of the quality improvement method is really it is it's sort of founded on the principle of uh, adaptation. So it's a very adaptable model, and if you do it well, you should be uh, keeping an eye out for context the whole time. And 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 so um, the context matters tremendously. Um, and and I think we were able to successfully um, move pretty quickly into a South African and then into other countries in Africa uh, context to apply the the quality improvement method. So uh, if you were to ask me what were the similarities and what are the differences, I think the main well, the main similarity is, is the essential method. We use a, a will, ideas, and the execution type of uh, model uh, everywhere we go. And I think uh, the issues of the psychology of change and, and, and dealing with variation and the crucial importance of data um, are all absolutely uh, paramount, as is uh, leadership. I think leadership, uh, we've learned over and over again how, how important that is. I think in terms of what's different, um, I think it's just 
just you're, you're really stretched uh, to be more imaginative because of the resource issue. You just don't have the kinds of resources that make uh, work a lot easier uh, in, in the U.S. context. So, um, you know, for instance, we uh, we take what we're doing right now on the WebEx totally for granted. We, 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 we take uh, Internet connectivity for granted. And when we're dealing with collaboratives, we, we cannot connect people um, uh, virtually. So there's a tremendous amount of, of in-person contact that needs to happen, and we use extension agents or change agents um, instead of uh, connecting people virtually we, c- we connect them in person um, and and I think that that actually has uh, some real advantages I think that we've been able to do things in some ways faster um, because of that personal uh, contact uh, in Africa than we've been able to do virtually in a more impersonal way yeah how would you define an extension agent or change agent sorry concept, so yeah. the, the extension agent concept actually comes from the US agriculture right, department right, <laughs> right exactly. and people so who go out people yeah. who go out so yeah. it's so, so that you have your core improvement team and there are people who are dedicated uh, to go out every day uh, and visit teams typically we would visit them at the start of a project once every two weeks or, or once a month uh, and then we can start to wean them as as, as the project uh, carries on um, but I think that that the amount of, of knowledge that you can pick up by visiting a site uh, collecting that uh, that learning and then seeding that uh, at the next site that you go to has been a tremendous advantage. Um, it's labor intensive, um, but I think it's it's yielded tremendous results. Can I just ask you one other follow-up question? Uh, if you had to just give us a few high-level ways that improvement has uh, improvement methods, what results they've brought about in in South Africa, for example, or even in Ghana, sort of some of the, the yeah. some results that have been particularly significant. Yeah, I think that uh, our, probably our most successful quick results has been have been to in in the field of HIV um, in identifying uh, the. People who are living in a, in a specific geographic area who need uh, antiretroviral treatment, um, and then setting up a system to identify them, prepare them, and get them on treatment in 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 rapid order. Um, so what we were able to do is first set up a a, a, a calculator, uh, which we were able to distribute to all the um, the regional and local uh, managers, so that they knew what their target was. So nobody had really it was they were in a bit. The dark before as to exactly how many people actually need treatment. And once you've got a number, you can then design a system uh, to address that and then and then move on to look at the processes in the way we typically would do. Most of our work in South Africa around HIV has, has focused on generating will, um, mostly through uh, the urgency of knowing what that number is, uh, and then working on reliability principles. So uh, making each one of those processes along the pathway to finally getting onto treatment and staying on treatment very reliable uh, along the way. So uh, I would say that those have been our quick, our, our quick early gains. Um, Terrific. All right. Thank you so much. 
Uh, you're listening to Pierre Barker. This is WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan. We're talking about a global view of improvement. So, Nigel, as uh, Nigel Crispus, I'm listening to Pierre. I'm thinking that improvement methods in some ways um, could perhaps by definition be considered sort of culturally neutral and infinitely adaptable to a lot of settings and may not bring even some of the same baggage uh, that other kinds of approaches uh, when people are trying to engage and improve things. Um, I'm looking at Nigel's face and I'm not sure he's convinced, but <laughs> I thought I'd start off with that. No. And, yeah, and get, as a way of saying, I think Nigel wants to twist, uh, change this just a bit, but go ahead. Well, no, no thanks for that, Magic. I mean, I, I do think that's right. I think one of the problems, though, and, and why my face was putting that expression <laughs> on, is it's how do you describe the quality improvement methods yeah. and the language you use and the baggage that comes with them. I think the methodologies, and I totally agree with Pierre, are right, but some of the other bits that come with them and are associated with them, and, and even just the language we use, can, can be uh, slightly, uh, you know, very, well, very culturally dependent. <laughs> Let me actually start somewhere slightly different and, and tell you about my journey in, into this area, because I think that will, that will get to the point. I, I ran the health service in England for, for a number of years, and, and when I retired, um, Tony Blair asked me if I would look at what we could do to help developing countries improve health. Um, and I did. I looked and I came back with a report which actually did highlight some very important things. One of them was precisely this point, that actually this systems thinking, that this way of approaching things um, was really important and, and could, could add enormous benefit, I think, in the way that Pierre has shown and not just talked about, but actually shown that it has in Africa. And another big area is I think there's an awful lot that we can do from, from richer countries to support the education and training of health workers, because actually the biggest deficit in many ways is there aren't people with knowledge. Um, a billion people around the world don't have access to a health worker, mm. uh, and therefore you know, people die of right. some terribly simple things. But having said all of that, I also realized three other things from that bit of work for, for, for Tony Blair. The first one was the bit that is very obvious. We are very interdependent. You know, the things that are going to come and get us in disease terms are going to be incubated um, in far away places in the world from where we're sitting in Cambridge, in places where they've got weak health systems, and that's where and they'll have a chance to incubate, and we're going to have new diseases spreading from those sort of bases. Therefore, we have a, a personal interest. We've got self-interest in working with people in other country. Uh, so that great sort of point about independence, which much more than that, it's about climate change, it's about using the same health workers and the same drugs and so on. The second point I realised is, is how culturally um, we were still in the business of telling people what we, what to do, whether we thought we were or not, uh, and some of this is about language. And I realised that, you know, we, we, and, and I was seeing that partly from seeing English health workers and American health workers, and English health workers inevitably think about health systems and healthcare in terms of the National Health Service and the sort of European models. That's the spectacles we wear when we see the world. And Americans, of course, were seeing it in, in rather different terms. And I came to this view that actually, not only was that odd, but actually, in, in, in reality, there was a lot we could learn from the countries we were working in. And so I have this notion of what if, what if we turned the world upside down? What if instead of importing health workers from uh, poorer countries to richer countries um, and in return giving them our ideas and ideologies, what if we turned it the other way around and we actually provided more people to train health workers in, in poorer countries and in return 
accepted or imported some of their knowledge and some of their ideas. And let me just give you three examples of what I'm talking about um, from different parts of the world. The first one is uh, in, a, in a place like Bangladesh, where a very big organization called BRAC work on healthcare. But they don't work on healthcare in isolation. So if they're working with a mother with her sick child, they'll also be making available to her education not just health education, other sorts of education, and maybe even being able to provide a microfinance loan so that she can actually set up a business. They don't see health as we do, as a separate industry run by a bunch of professionals. This is Health is just part of life. Second area is this great link between um, public health and, in other words, health issues and promotion and all of that, and health care. And we, again, tend in, in, in the West, I think, to concentrate very much on the healthcare aspect. And I think looking for the future, we're going to have to learn much more about handling the health right. aspect. And then the third area, and the most contentious, is staffing. Um, and people without our resources have actually tended to do things with staff in rather different ways. So the very simple example is Mozambique, where in Mozambique almost all the caesareans outside the capital are done by nurses with a bit of additional training. They are doing them as successfully as physicians do, according to 15-year studies by European researchers. Um, they're doing them at half the cost. Of course, the nurses stay in the country. Mm-hmm. So there's a real challenge there. Not that we should get Caesars done like that, not that we should copy what the Mozambiquois do, anyone they should copy what we do, um, but it doesn't have to make you think about the barriers and your own mental barriers about how you do things, and it's a real challenge to some of our traditional pre- professional demarcations. Mm-hmm. So my point in yeah. all of that is actually there's a lot we can learn from our contact and being engaged with people in other countries, and there's a lot we can teach as well. You know, everyone has got something to teach, including these wonderful QI methods that we're, we're talking about. But everyone's also got something to learn. Okay. Thank you so much, Nigel Crisp. And we do have a link to how you can get hold of a copy of Nigel's book in a resource document uh, that we make available um, tied to uh, our program today. It's available as of tomorrow morning. And I think we can also uh, chat that in uh, if you're interested immediately. Uh, but that is Nigel's book, Turning the World upside down. There's lots of great examples in there. All right, Pedro, before we go to uh, questions uh, and comments, I want to now bring you back in. Uh, Pedro Delgado, uh, who's often doing a lot of uh, traveling and is in Portugal right now, perhaps uh, getting a bit of rest, but we grabbed him for the program today. So, Pedro, you listened to Pierre, you heard Nigel. Um, it's They're all kind of complementary, I think, ideas uh, in, in all of this. Um, what pieces of this do you feel you bring now to the work that you're most engaged in uh, most actively right now, which is sort of helping to uh, others in Latin America convene and bring forward uh, initiatives uh, to work on improving health and health care? My my view much will will be very complementary to Pierre's and Nigel's, and it will add and, and perhaps merge both sets of ideas uh, broadly. Uh, first of all, we, we started with a with an all teacher learn approach in Latin America. We very humbly uh, learning from what they had done over the last 25 years. Uh, a lot of knowledge hosted in the Latin American Society for Quality, Sola Casa. We had a meeting in December with with a group from the society, and and they came up with uh, with a plan. Uh, we convened the meeting alongside them, uh, and the plan w- was was building again on the points that Pierre and Nigel made. And I'll tell you broadly uh, what the elements of that were. What one of the elements was building capability, the need to do that, 
uh, broadly. So uh, getting people up to speed with systems thinking, quality improvement methods, and so on, and uh, that being added to the portfolio of experience that they bring, and other things that are very much alive in the continent, like quality assurance, accreditation, and so on. So we're very much uh, open eyes, open ears, learning and trying to add to the efforts that are already there. We want to be an accelerant, not a, not a distraction. Um, so, so that's one of the elements. Uh, and alongside that, we, we believe firmly in, uh, in uh, helping develop future leaders in the area of quality improvement, safety, and leadership. And we've, uh, coincidentally today, uh, we're launching the, the translation of the open school courses, the IHI open school courses into Spanish and into Portuguese. Uh, we, we realize that the contexts are very different, that those courses were originally designed for the U.S., but we also believe that some of the principles are, are applicable worldwide. Uh, and from the experience of the open school, having over three, uh, 300 chapters all over the world, we realized that it was important to translate them to different languages to make them more accessible to the worldwide community of future leaders. So that's, that's building capability is one of the elements. Demonstrating results, Pierre mentioned some of the HIV statistics. We're very keen on building on, on those experiences and, and trying to adapt them to the problems that are uh, inherent and present very much in Latin America. One of them is uh, maternal mortality. Another one is safety. Another one is uh, um, chronic conditions. So we're planning on collaborative working, and the reception to the initial ideas has been, has been outstanding. We plan to use collaborative methods. Uh, and try and add to the to the ongoing experience uh, to to design um, projects that lead to outstanding results. Uh, the last element is the, is the development of of leadership capability. So gathering people in in similar positions uh, to to exchange knowledge, to exchange views. We realize that the contrast in all over the world, but in Latin America particularly, within country and and amongst countries. Is, is in, incredible. So, so in some countries we have incredible uh, private health systems and, and very poor um, public infrastructure and health systems. So we want to make sure that we that we support the work of trying to decrease their variability, trying to close gaps, um, and and we plan to bring all these efforts together in a in a yearly platform. So starting in 2012 with a Latin American Forum for Quality and Safety in the same way that we have the National Forum in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and we have in partnership with BMJ, the International Forum in Europe. We, we, we're really looking forward to developing alongside Sola Casa and within a, a, a new frame of a, of a consortium in Latin America these ideas. Wow. So <laughs> there's a lot going on in, in many countries encompassed in all of that. So thank you, Pedro. All right, we've set the table here um, in some general ways, but I think in very, very rich ways, we hope for all of you. So we're now going to switch gears and see what's on your minds. Those of you who've joined us today, Jesse McCall is going to remind you uh, about how to use chat to ask your questions and post comments. Jesse. Thanks, Madge. So I've just turned the chat on for everybody. When you're chatting, you can enter text in the box at the bottom right-hand corner of your screen and make sure that you select all participants that you're going to send that 
that message too. While we wait for some questions, I've got one of my own to throw in here. Uh, <laughs> Nigel, you mentioned uh, the interesting staffing model for C-sections in Mozambique, and I was wondering about Pierre and Pedro. Uh, what are some of the you know interesting ideas or you know most promising advances that you guys have seen in your travels? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, we'll start with Pierre. Well, I think um, what we've learned um, is the the importance of, of involving the community uh, in a very integrated way into solving health uh, problems. So um, I, most of our experience with this comes from our work in Malawi and in Ghana. And I think what we've realized really is that you cannot solve um, health problems uh, at a population scale uh, unless you really are in, involved in the community and I think so that was the first and I think very much linked to that is the cultural context. So we were facing a situation in Ghana in Ghana we have a, a large national project to uh, decrease mortality in children under five and uh, one of the most startling statistics for me is the uh, is the effect uh, of a woman's ability to make her own decisions uh, that that has on childhood mortality. So uh, for a, a woman who lives in a village in a rural area in northern Ghana, if, uh, if she has to – if she can make a decision on her own about her, if her child gets sick and she can decide to take that child uh, to the nearest clinic without any further impediment, um, that child – has on average uh, about a, a, a 50 out of 1,000 mortality rate, which is very high um, by U.S. standards. But if, if that same woman has to ask her husband uh, for permission to take that child to a clinic, that number goes up to 100 per 1,000. And if she has to ask her husband and the chief uh, that number goes up to 150. So these are kind of lessons, really, about the effect of of, of cultural practices and, and also uh, navigating the community that we've learnt are absolutely crucial in, in trying to solve problems. And I think if you translate that back, there are similar impediments uh, in, in terms of the way people think about their own diseases and their reactions uh, to getting sick and the decisions that they make uh, when they are, are not well or the decisions that they make while they're still healthy uh, that I think are universally uh, applicable. And I think it just strikes you in a way in that kind of a situation and, and shows how important it is. Thank Thanks, Pierre. Pedro, very quickly, uh, do you have a, a, a good example, something that struck you uh, in terms of uh, on that theme of what we can learn uh, from other countries? <laughs> So, so, yeah, the, there is a there is one that I was particularly struck by, and it's a strategy called the citizen endorsement strategy. Yeah, citizens who accredit institutions in a way, so I could call it accreditation, I could call it certification, uh, but it's a group of citizens who who are not patients of a facility within their community, who go in, uh, have a look around with a standard questionnaire of things to look for in terms of quality. Uh, they list them out, they meet with the facility director, the facility director signs a letter alongside the citizens who brought the, the issues up, uh, and the citizens come back 90 days later to ask the director whether those things had been addressed. So it's shifting the, the balance of power to citizens who are inherently interested in, in improving the quality of their facilities throughout the country. This strategy in, from Mexico mm. uh, to, took on a, a, an immense dimension in terms of the number 
of citizen endorsement groups that grew uh, within the country uh, across uh, its geography to, to serve as a vehicle for improving quality. Thank you, Pedro Delgado, uh, on the phone from Portugal. Nigel, let me turn to you. Martin has asked a question. I'm, I'm not. It's, it's a pretty big one. How much should healthcare cost as it relates to average income? Um, I, that's, that's a nice global question, but perhaps we can just use that as a trampoline to talk about uh, what, what we're striving for here in terms of affordability, given that we are talking about, in, in some instances, countries where um, money, it, there's not a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't think there is an answer. And uh, <laughs> right. if, if Martin's got one, perhaps he could uh, send <laughs> it to us. Okay. Um, but, but I do think it's an in interesting and important point because it gets you into the question of whose responsibility is healthcare as well and whose responsibility is health. And I mentioned earlier that this point people are now talking about, about the economic transition, when states suddenly realise they have to do something about the healthcare needs of their population because this is causing social unrest or whatever. And you see this quite explicitly in China at the moment, that healthcare has become part of the way in which the state is wanting to make improvements for its citizens at a time when you know, there are some internal tensions. Um, and therefore the, the, the question becomes, you know, how much of this should act, what, what's the state's responsibility for providing some basic level of health protection, certainly, I suspect we all agree. Um, in the UK and a European system, we'd be thinking about social solidarity, that there's some notion that there's a level of health care that should be available to everyone. Right. And then maybe there's discretionary spend on top of that. Um, so I think that's the sort of model that, that I'd be looking at. And I, and I think the amount is, uh, the amount of what that um, broad level of health care that's available to everyone is, depends on the wealth of the state. And at different levels, as a state starts to grow economically, it may well uh, see it as appropriate to uh, increase the range of things that are available to their, their people. So in some bits of Africa, you are starting to see um, free health care in certain areas like maternity. Right. Um, and it's not just the cost of the state, because actually um, we also know that poor health is a real drag on the economy. Exactly. And that HIV AIDS has probably depressed uh, growth in Africa by at least 1% every year. Okay, thanks Nigel and thanks Martin for that question and feel free to add any more information. Um, there's another question here from Sophia, how do you build capacity for quality improvements in developing countries, find uh, change agents uh, from a Swede in Nairobi? <laughs> okay. Pierre, let me uh, pose that one to you. Sure, um, I think this is a really, uh, really important question because um, we uh, we ourselves have limited uh, resources in and, and we, we've asked ourselves this question uh, a lot of the time and I think you've got two ways that you could approach this. You could say, okay, well, we're going to spend a lot of time building capacity uh, in the hope that that capacity could be used uh, in these uh, countries or um, we could really focus on the programs themselves and build capacity within, within the program context and the answer is probably both but we've in fact focused really on building partners uh, who will have who will become a durable resource for quality improvement in the countries in which we're working so a lot of attention going into building the capacity for quality improvement and that's not just learning the model for improvement but that's also learning how to lead quality improvement how to teach it um, and how to really truly become a, a resource uh, in a local context so um, we spend a lot of effort 
effort on making sure that the that the that the partners that we are building will be able to continue to do the work uh, long after we leave. Um, as far as the change agents are concerned, uh, I think that they're just part of the part of the structure, and I think we're learning uh, what what the skills of a good change agent should be, and I think we're honing that, um, and it's become a very important um, set of uh, of skills that we are now defining and describing uh, uh, because I think it's a cadre of um, of health worker almost that that um, is is going to become very important and when I say health worker it's it's uh, these change agents I think are going to increasingly the, the the skills of a change agent are increasingly going to be built into supervisory and managerial um, roles uh, throughout the health system so that it's not as it is, unfortunately, at the moment, it's a change agent coming in as part of a in an NGO uh, to assist with the health system. But we're in the process of transferring that skill into the health system so that the change agents become part of the health uh, workforce, uh, usually in a supervisory or, as I say, managerial role. Okay. Thanks, Pierre Barker. Again, it's WIHI. We're talking about a global view of improvement. You were just listening to Dr. Pierre Barker. Nigel Crisp is also with us, as is Pedro Delgado. Pedro, I'm going to throw a question to you. Christina is asking, what barrier does Latin America uh, and the world have to healthcare improvement that the U.S. does not have? On the other hand, what facilitates healthcare improvement in Latin America uh, that the U.S. Uh, could learn from? So, uh, uh, kind of both sides, I guess, some barriers and challenges in Latin America and perhaps some barriers and challenges that don't exist that maybe are plague us here in the U.S. Matt, let me, let me regress for one second. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to build on, on Pierre oh, uh, in yeah. terms of the... That's the beauty of a... Ta- you know that's the beauty of a talk show. You got to just <laughs> <laughs> go ahead and reframe it and say, I'd rather answer another question or make... Go ahead, so, Pedro. So I, I, I was, and I thank you for, for allowing me to do this. I, I just wanted to, to highlight a, a point here, which is uh, within the theory of change that, that, we're, that we're developing, there's, there's the idea of quality and innovation centers so when there's a when there's a cadre of individuals change agents uh, improvement leaders and so on within a, a geopolitical region we're we're uh, we're thinking that quality and innovation centers uh, could could provide a home for these individuals and uh, a, a, a service for the system as a whole to drive quality and and will be will be uh, talking about quality and innovation centers much more through our websites uh, pretty soon. So for Sophia, I, I, I would encourage you to to, uh, to contact any of us to, to, to continue the conversation. In terms of Christina, you can be as controversial as, as, uh, as, as, we, as we would like. In terms of the first question, the barriers that Latin America and perhaps the world, and by that I take it from Christina that she may be referring to to uh, lower income uh, countries, uh, lower middle income countries. Uh, you can be controversial and say that resources, if you compare the GDP uh, spent in the U.S. in terms of healthcare and, and and what that is in other countries, there's a big big gap. So you could talk about resources, although we know there are challenges even with with a lot of resources in the U.S. Uh, and what facilitates healthcare improvement in other parts of the world? My argument would be linked to the first one. So when when you have uh, low resources, you need to be creative with the way you use them. Nigel mentioned uh, the workforce issues. Uh, Pierre mentioned some of the improvement strategies, and I would argue that creativity 
is a is a big big underutilized tool that we have in many parts of the world to build on to find very simple solutions to very complex problems. Nigel was thank you Pedro. I saw Nigel kind of shaking his head. Oh, but maybe it wasn't. No, he was just uh, th- thinking. I'm trying to avoid coughing. So he threw his head one way. Sorry. Um, well, we have. Thank you, Pedro. I guess there there are a couple of related questions here uh, to all this, which are barriers and perhaps things that are being facilitated. Uh, Ravi is asking. Uh, maybe I'll throw this to what you, Nigel. What is Please. your experience on providing market-based versus state-based healthcare solutions as it relates to some of these issues? We've got probably examples of all of them. Uh, this is an extremely, uh, extremely important point. Can I, can I just make one distinction clear, which is the, the point about state-based health system, mm-hmm. healthcare solutions. That is not the same thing as state-provided healthcare solutions. I certainly come from a tradition and a culture that um, it is appropriate that the state should ensure that healthcare is available to its citizens, right. but doesn't have to provide it itself. In fact, uh, the, the, the reforms that I led in the NHS were moving from a system where not only did we ensure that people had it, but we provided it, to actually ensuring that people had it, but providing competition and allowing the private sector to um, provide the healthcare within that broader framework. And I think that's not a bad example of where a lot of health systems are moving towards, so that you're starting to see uh, China again, if we just take China as an example. They had gone to a completely market system, but what they've been doing in the last three years is they've set up their own national health system, in effect, um, which is going to be much more like the sort of single-payer type approach uh, uh, with some notion, as I say, of of social solidarity, uh, but then have a, a range of different... Uh, providers who can compete to do it. So there's, there's, there's some convergence. But I think one of the key points here is what's culturally acceptable in your country. You know? and, and, and we, uh, for, from, from England, but actually I suspect from Europe and, 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 and the US, we're coming at this from such different approaches as to what we think our society is about. And we think that it's a basic point of our society that people should be um, able to, whoever they are, however poor they are, should be able to have an access to a certain level of health care. Uh, whereas clearly in your society, there's, there's another fundamental belief about people doing things for themselves and, uh, and being in charge and not being, having things done to them. You know? And that's a really big tension. So, so I, don't, I don't think there's an answer that is applicable to every country, but my sense is that you need a mix of both mm-hmm. um, in, in some way. Thank you. Anybody want to jump in on any of this? Uh, Pierre, maybe I'll ask you about, um, uh, well, there's a question that's come in around buy-in. And um, as you were giving your narrative earlier, you were talking about the way in which you're working in collaboratives and trying to build a really great infrastructure that can carry on the work. Uh, This person is asking, this is Bill, about buy-in and uh, sustaining quality improvement initiatives. I'm sure it's, it's a big issue. But yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a huge issue. And in fact, it's a it's a huge issue everywhere in the world. And I think, you know, just the, the initial barrier of getting going uh, is huge. Uh, and then you encounter your next barrier, which is scaling up. Uh, and, and I think, you know, knowing uh, how to approach that is, is really, really key. And so I think 
uh, the biggest way to overcome those kinds of barriers is is to be really thoughtful about how you set up. So when we went uh, to South Africa, no one knew about us, uh, first of all, and no one knew about the method. Um, and so you cannot assume that your method uh, really is – that people will view it as, as being better to the status quo. And, and I think it's very fair and legitimate that one should have to show uh, that – that your method works. And so that's the whole point of the prototyping phase. Uh, we spent a lot of effort on making sure that those first projects that we did, uh, which we, we um, uh, were very carefully designed to get a good result, um, and, and we picked the places that we worked in very carefully. And I think once we had some data to show that, that this method actually works, uh, the whole conversation changed. And so we went within a space of five years in South Africa from a method which had really not been used at all to, I'd say, now probably the preeminent method in South Africa that is being used to change uh, healthcare. And and there was a phenomenal change in mindset that needed to happen uh, in that process. And I, I think that it is incumbent on us um, to design our programs, our projects really well, uh, to and to report them well, to do, to have good evaluation designs, uh, and and uh, to disseminate that uh, information as widely as possible. Okay. Thanks very much. We do. Uh, thank you for your questions. Don't be shy. Uh, people, um, I've, I've chatted in a few things, but we're welcoming more questions. Somebody is asking, and I think this is a, the great spirit of improvement, is there a plan to roll out a basic toolkit to guide developing countries who are interested but may not know where and how to start, uh, which is quite interesting. And that relates to a question I was going to ask, which is how do we build some sort of global all-teach-all-learn community? What might that learning community look like? As I said earlier to my guests, I think of WIHI as helping that process, but something that might be more systematic and, and reliable. But uh, any any plans? Uh, toolkit sounds <laughs> like we can get it all contained, even as we're continuing to learn. But yeah. wh- where, where are we headed with any of that? Uh, Pierre, let me start with you. Sure. So... I, I, I would be reluctant to use the word uh, toolkit just because I think uh, we would we would really not want uh, to give the impression that there is any uh, prescriptive uh, one-size-fits-all uh, solution, uh, and that's the sort of the very essence of QI. But I think within the QI method, I think there certainly are a lot of the, the lessons that we've learned uh, – which have to do with the sequence of, of how you might go about this. And I, and, and I think, again, if we come back to the, the mantra of will, ideas, and execution, it's, it really gives us a, a, a roadmap for how we might uh, approach this, certainly taking care of the basic um, psychology of, of change, um, having a set of ideas which is generated not so much from the outside but taking local context into account um, and then uh, having a, a good implementation method which goes through prototyping and then scale up. I think just there's some very basic principles. And what's interesting is that the approaches that are coming to us now from some of the big multilateral organizations are asking really what um, um, Malcolm is, 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 is suggesting, which is how do we, how do we find um, – how do we advise um, other 
um, organizations uh, who are seeking to, to use a quality improvement method on on a basic approach, uh, and I think that we are we are thinking a lot about that at the moment, and and I think that we are learning how to do that around specific programs, mostly around HIV at the moment, but probably in maternal and child health at the moment. So I think that we will be developing what I think is being called the basic toolkit for how do you how how do you approach this um, uh, a topic, um, and so we'll see. Do you think this will, um, I'll ask any of you, that partly what will facilitate this are sort of cross-cutting health issues, uh, perhaps related to maternal health, uh, childhood health, other kinds of things, Nigel? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I, I mean, firstly, I think the, the role that IHI has in helping just make this visible, you know, helping people to just think about it is important. I think there's another very important role, which is in people's education. And and I have a, I'm not a professional health worker. I, I've became involved in health in my mid-30s, but, but, but for, for the way in which we train future professionals seemed to me to be fantastically important, and that the change has to happen in the heads of the professionals rather than on paper, as it were, so that people see the world differently and, uh, and behave differently. So I think that's a really fundamental part that goes alongside uh, what, 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 what uh, Pierre is talking about. But I think there's another bit, which is about experience, which is actually about you know finding ways of linking people together. Some of this can be virtually. Some of this is, is about you know the, the wonderful prospects we've got of increasing uh, use of, uh, of different forms of communication and making the world smaller in that way. And some of it's actually just about putting people face to face. I think there's a lot of that that's, that's needed. Um, but all of that, I think the way, the way to do it in the planned way is exactly what you said, Madge, which, which is actually to try and do it around particular themes. Mm-hmm. You know, maternal mortality is an important one. The big new epidemic, as it were, newish epidemic yeah. in the world is non-communicable diseases, you know, where, and, and how, and, and none of us have got the answers to that. We may all have bits of them. So I suspect these are the sort of things we should do to learn how to learn together and to, if you like, source innovation wherever it's happening. Right. Thank you, Nigel. Pedro, maybe I'll let you uh, weigh in on that as we kind of start to get close to the top of the hour. Uh, as you're, you talked about a very ambitious agenda uh, over the next year with a lot of healthcare entities and leaders in Latin America. Is there a strong desire on the part of us, as some of these folks to be part of something larger globally and to be learning uh, in, in this respect as we're talking about right now? I, w- I would say unequivocally yes. Uh, the answer to that, uh, and and to add to to the answers that have already been given to the question from Malcolm, the the idea of the uh, worldwide network of quality and innovation centers tries to address this o- open access, uh, shared ideas, shared learning um, uh, principle. Uh, and to go back to to Claudia's. Uh, um, statement or uh, it, it's incredible the chat is, is amazing so so mm-hmm. the people that are on the other side I, I want to thank you for for all this it, it, it's uh, it's triggered a lot of thoughts but in terms of the toolkit specifically the translation of the open school right. courses uh, so uh, basic skills in safety in quality improvement and in leadership is an attempt to do uh, that uh, specifically so so the courses themselves are very short, very simple, but but beyond that, we want to create communities of learning. So the courses will have the exp- the experiential side. So what are what, how are you using what you're learning? 
and how can we share that with others? So we'll have community calls with students and young professionals from throughout Latin America, uh, led in Spanish, hosted in Spanish, so that they exchange those thoughts. And at the same time, the Open Schools has a worldwide community that usually hosts calls in English, which uh, are, are building a worldwide community. So we can target uh, the, the local needs. We can, we can address the cultural issues linked to language but we can also be part of a global community. That's, that's how we're framing a, a very small element and contribution to what could be a, a set of toolkits. I mean, I, I think a, a one-off toolkit, as Pierre suggested, it's a, it's a very hard thing to even start to imagine. Uh, but this is a, an attempt to try and link people to, to learn together, to talk to each other, and to think about a future that, that's different and, and, of course, that's better and always improving. Thank you, Pedro. Nigel, we, we've got a comment from Virginia there. Yes, which, which is an important, yeah. important comment on, on the role of WHO and PEPFAR and indeed other right. international agencies. And there has been a swing in the last three or four years rather than them to come in with their own ideas to try and develop countrywide plans. What is really important is that they support the countries to develop the country plans and they support those plans because you do see some of this tension, which is an inevitable tension and, and quite difficult to work through, where coming looking from outside, I think you might be able to do this better this way, but inside the country they want to do it that way and they've got a different set of priorities. And it's a really difficult tension to, to, to get hold of. But I suspect that the sustainable improvement is going to be if you support the country to make their own priorities. I have a last, thank you, Nigel. I have one last quick question, and then we'll wrap things up, and let's go around the horn. I'll start with Pierre. I sense from the participation on today's program that we have a number of people joining us from a lot of different locations around the globe, which is just terrific. And when we get off the program today, and if you've been logged in through computer, please, in your survey response, let us know uh, where, where you're from. We'd love to have a better idea of uh, how this program and others we may do can be useful to you in the work that you're doing around the globe. But my final question I'd like each of you, maybe quickly... There are probably people who join today and who do tune into WIHI who work in all kinds of facilities across the United States. And I think people agree in principle with having a more global view, trying to learn from all these countries, but in the day-to-dayness of all the immediate issues facing people, uh, it isn't always clear what the connection is. And if you could just think of one way what what would be the benefit uh, to a hospital leader here in the United States or somebody that's right now working in any sort of clinic? I know that I hope that's not a trick question, but uh, just trying to make some connections around uh, helping people better understand the, the connections that they may not even be uh, aware of themselves. So, uh, just to clarify, you're, you're, are you saying you're, you're asking how people can become involved in, in engaged, and what 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 folks might get out of that for themselves? Well, I think uh, I would strongly <laughs> encourage anybody who has an interest in in this and has the ability to spend some time uh, abroad uh, to find uh, programs. Uh, in in uh, low middle income countries, particularly, um, who are trying to uh, execute improvement programs, um, maybe not necessarily using a quality improvement method, but who could benefit from uh, using a quality improvement uh, approach. I think um, just to get back to the, the the question about the WHO and PEPFAR, both WHO and PEPFAR are. are 
moving in a very uh, deliberate way towards using quality improvement methods more and more in their programming. And I think that there is going to be an explosion, actually, of the use of uh, quality improvement methods around the world uh, to improve health systems. So I think that there will be, led primarily by these two organizations, in fact, there will be tremendous opportunities for people with quality improvement skills to become involved in global health uh, using this methodology. Remind everybody what PEPFAR stands for. It's the, the President's Emergency uh, Fund um, for AIDS Research. <laughs> okay. Very quickly, I know we're, I'm, I'm peeking over the hour here and people are probably, Nigel, uh, you, what would you say? I absolutely agree with that. My, my, my message would be start start learning. I got involved in this when I was Chief Executive of the NHS because I saw doctors and nurses who went and did even a week or two weeks abroad and came back remembering why they were a doctor or a nurse. They came back refreshed. It opened their minds. So start on the journey and see what you find. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Nigel. Pedro, you'll, you'll get kind of the last word on that on that topic. Uh, I, I, I had two words, two words in mind. Uh, yeah. uh, just to be short, uh, one was shortcuts. To, to answers to problems that that may be problems in one context and, and may not be problems in other contexts, and the other one is uh, is, is a fresh uh, set of eyes to to, uh, to to look at the world from a, from a different view. Uh, there's a lot of satisfaction in in giving, sharing, learning, but also receiving some of it. So. Thank you so much. Okay, Pedro Delgado, who joined us from Portugal, Nigel Crisp in the studio with me, as well as Dr. Pierre Barker. I'm uh, grateful for your time, and thank you all of you who joined today for your participation. A reminder that when you log off the program today, you can download any of the slides that you saw. There's a brief survey with that we'd love it if you could fill out. helps us understand what things we can do to continually improve this program. Next up on WHI on July, 21st, Payment Reform as We Speak. Our guest is Jeff Selberg. He's the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of IHI and also will be joined by Stuart Altman, who is the Saul Chaikin Professor of National Health Policy at Brandeis University. That's going to be a lively discussion about value-based purchasing and where we're headed uh, on some of these payment uh, reforms here in the United States. Another reminder when you log off today, you can download the chat and we hope we got to as many questions uh, for you as possible. Any questions whatsoever, you can always email info at IHI.org. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. We have some fun music that opens and closes the program. Original music by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sapasoa. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, all around the world. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Good day.